Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you play the game at that level, I mean, if you ask a quarterback in the Super Bowl who's behind 30 to nothing in the third quarter, do you think you're going to win? They're going to say, yeah, we're going to win. They have that confidence in their ability because they've done that before. They have come back. And I think that you really have to have that belief to keep going. In politics, as in sport, upsets happen. Joe Biden's far ahead of Donald Trump in the polls right now. But frontrunners sometimes lose. Teams do score 30 points in the fourth quarter from time to time. With 87 days to go, this is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prudeau, The Economist's US editor, and this is a podcast about the 2020 elections. Each week, we take a big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how to lose an election from a winning position. The Economist's election forecast currently gives Biden an 89% chance of victory. But it's still early August, and a lot can change in three months. In this episode, we'll hear from two campaign veterans about how quickly a dead cert can become an also-ran. We'll hear what it's like to be trapped inside a doomed campaign. And we'll find out how campaigns that seem to be going brilliantly in the summer can fall apart in the fall. With me, as ever, to discuss all of this is Charlotte Howard, our New York bureau chief, and John Fasman, our Washington correspondent. Charlotte and John, you come to us despite interference from Hurricane Isaias, who's knocked out your power at home, John. In fact, I can hear the gentle hum of a propane generator in the background. We've been running on generator power for about two days now. The interview you're going to hear in the show, I recorded at the Gunn Memorial Library. I'm very grateful to them for letting me record there. But when I got out of the recording session, I found a giant tree blocking our street. So we have been propaned and trapped for about two days. Charlotte, how's the storm affected you? I've been spending quarantine in a house where if you sneeze near a wire, the power will go out. So it wasn't a particular surprise that we lost power. It was more surprising that it was accompanied by a flood. But uh, so it goes this year. But you were, you were away last week. Tell us about the vacation. I had a great time, thank you. I was in Cornwall, which is a very beautiful part of the UK. It was sunny, which almost never happens here, uh, and the waves were really good. I'm a very bad but very enthusiastic surfer, so it was more or less a perfect vacation for me. But I, I feel for you guys with what you've been having to go through with the storm and, and everything else. Um, I've, I've had a really nice time. I feel b- almost bad saying that. 
Well, this week we've got a slightly unusual podcast for you in that you're going to be hearing a bit less from the three of us and a bit more from two of our favorite campaign operatives who John Fasman brought together to talk about how you can lose a presidential election from a winning position. Yeah, in my view, the campaign is now at a crucial point. At this point, four years ago, remember, Hillary Clinton appeared to be cruising to victory. Joe Biden, as John said at the beginning of the program, has an 89% chance of winning, but 11% is not zero. And survivorship bias makes every successful campaign look visionary and every unsuccessful campaign riddled with errors. But in the heat of battle, things aren't quite so easy to discern. So in the midst of this storm, with the lights off and trees falling around me, and by some small miracle, the internet at my local archival research library is still open, I spoke to two key people in presidential campaigning. Stuart Stevens was the lead strategist for Mitt Romney's 2012 campaign. He worked on George W. Bush's two campaigns, and he is the author most recently of a terrific book called It Was All a Lie, How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump. I also talked to Matt Bennett, who worked on Michael Dukakis's 1988 campaign, Bill Clinton's two successful campaigns, and is now an executive vice president at Third Way, a center-left think tank. I wanted to know what a campaign feels like from the inside. From the outside, Barack Obama's 2008 campaign seemed fundamentally built around hopefulness, and Donald Trump's 2016 campaign felt built around grievance. I asked them if a campaign has to have one organizing idea, if it has to fundamentally be about one unitary and discernible thing. Matt Bennett got the first word in. Well, that was the rule up until Trump. I'm not sure what the Trump organizing principle was other than chaos. But all of these rules that govern presidential campaigns are made to be broken because their data set is small. So every time they say, well, you cannot win unless you do this thing or if you do that thing, those rules uh, never survive much time or scrutiny because ultimately there's just not that many cases from which to choose from. I think that the essential dynamic in every campaign is, what is the question the voters are answering on election day? So what is the campaign about? So I always take 1992 as a classic example. There were a lot of races that President Bush could have won for reelect, right? Experience, foreign policy, gravitas. The one race he couldn't win was a race about change. Aren't you ready to say enough is enough? Vote Democratic for a change. If you look at the wide swings in that campaign. I mean, Clinton was in third place in the spring and went on to win a a comfortable victory. It was really, I think, that fluctuation of what were the voters looking for? What was this race about? Government just isn't working for the hardworking families of America. We need fundamental change, not more of the same. That's why I've offered a comprehensive plan, a real plan. But once the race became about change, there was no way that a, a guy who had been in Washington, held all these different jobs, was president of the United States, could be as convincing an agent of change as a younger guy from Arkansas who'd never served in Washington. Together we can make America work again. It didn't have to be about change. It could have been about a lot of other things. Because George Bush has had the worst economic record of any president in 50 years. George Bush is trying to scare you about Bill Clinton, but nothing could be more frightening than four more years. Carville famously said it's about the economy, stupid. I don't really think it was about the economy. I think it was about change. Bill Clinton, for people, for a change. You mentioned the campaign sort of solidifying after the convention, which leads into the next couple of questions I want to ask. Matt, summer of 1998, Governor Dukakis had a healthy lead in the polls. What did that summer look like for you? 
In 88, we came out of the convention with a 17-point lead in the polls, and we were feeling really good. I was very young, and it seemed to me like things were great. I had never really experienced a Democratic president, except when I was a kid in the late 70s. And it was a very exciting moment. It did seem like Bush was beatable. There was a famous cover of Newsweek magazine, which at the time really mattered in American politics, that said the wimp factor was a picture of Bush sailing, which was ridiculous and unfair. He had been a hero in World War II. But nevertheless, that was one of the themes that had taken hold. However, Dukakis did something that no uh, candidate in their right mind ever will do again, which is he took a week off during the Republican convention in order to kind of step aside and give Bush his due, which is quaint in retrospect, but again, was kind of catastrophic. Our lead disappeared. And by the time the Republican convention was over, Bush had a lead and he never relinquished it. My opponent won't rule out raising taxes now says he'll raise them as a last resort or a third resort. But when a politician talks like that, you know that's one resort he'll be checking into. So we were running from behind for the entire general election. Stuart, what was your summer like in 2012? Our summer was pretty miserable. <laughs> we came out of the primary behind. So I, I think there's one really important factor here we should talk about. 2012 was the first time that you'd had a general election matchup where both candidates since 1976 were not in the federal funding system. So Obama had raised massive amounts of money. And one of the things that the federal funding system did was it did level the playing field. It was also intended to clean up money. So under that, Bush lost and uh, Carter lost. And you ask yourself, when was the last time an incumbent lost when there was not federal funding? And the answer is Herbert Hoover. And he had sort of a bad year. So we came out of the primary broke and we were a little behind. And then in June and July, the Obama campaign spent more on television, mostly attacking Romney, than the Bush and Kerry campaigns had spent together, their entire campaign. So was that definitive? Was it decisive? It's hard to say, but it sure sucked. They were out there like running 4,000 points in these big markets. We finally borrowed $30 million to just kind of stay alive. But it's fascinating in retrospect, if you want to get into this, the missed opportunity that the Trump campaign lost not to do the same to Biden. Let me ask one last summer question. Matt, what is the difference inside a campaign between the sort of feeling in August and the feeling in November? Well, it entirely depends on whether you're winning or losing, and I've experienced both. Winning is better, but the feeling of a losing campaign in August is that you don't know you're losing because you're, you're not really yet. The campaign still is within reach most of the time in August. I mean, we may look back on this month and think it, it was gone already. I hope we do, but probably not. Probably things will tighten up and the race will be more competitive. But by the time you get to October, when you're on a losing campaign, you really feel it. And Stuart, what about you in 2012? Governor Romney always struck me as fundamentally decent, even-tempered, kind person. Was there a sort of freak out of sorts as you, as you look toward the fall? No, no, there really wasn't. It's really interesting, you know, I think in those moments, you really find out what people are like. So if you take that moment when that 47% take came up, right. uh, which was in September, Mitt Romney attacked 47% of Americans who pay no income tax, including veterans, elderly, the disabled. My job is not to worry about those people. Doesn't the president have to worry about everyone? You know, it's an extraordinary moment because Governor Romney kind of got a group of us together and said, look, this is my fault. 
I shouldn't have said this. I did say it. Uh, I can explain to you how it happened, but it doesn't matter. And actually, I knew how it happened because I was the only staffer who happened to be there. But, you know, it's on me. The only thing we can do is focus on when is our next chance to come forward. So two days later, there was a appearance down in Miami that was organized by Telemundo with a largely Hispanic focus. And he just, let's focus on that. Let's, let's win that day. And it takes a lot of... A lot of maturity to do that. My father was born in Mexico. My wife's father was born in Wales. They came to this country. The idea that I'm anti-immigrant is repulsive. And he was very, very good at that next public event, which was uh, in Florida. John, both Matt and Stuart made reference there to gaffes that the campaigns that they'd worked on had made. In the Dukakis case, you know, Matt highlighted that week that he took off, which seems like a very strange decision in retrospect. In Stuart's case, Romney talking about the 47%. For those of you who might not remember 2012 so clearly, there was a famous remark that Mitt Romney made at a fundraiser where he was secretly taped. And he said that 47% of Americans were dependent on government, believed they were victims thought the government had responsibility to take care of them, and he essentially wrote them off as potential Republican voters. Do campaign operatives and journalists overweight the importance of campaign gaffes, or are they you know, really as important as they, they seem in retrospect? I think we might overweight them just because we're looking for a narrative. Like That's a writing technique, right? That's what we do. But I think it's pretty clear that people's decision in a general election is based on a whole host of impressions and thoughts and sort of feelings and reactions. And so the narrative drive that we have keeps things readable, but I'm not sure how accurate it is. I think there's a difference between gaffes and big events. So the 47% thing didn't seem to me really like a gaffe in the way that Al Gore sighing profusely during his debate against George Bush seemed like a gaffe. And I think it also depends when it happens. So you heard Stevens talk about Romney getting back out there and his next appearance after that 47% tape came out. And you compare that with, in 2016, James Comey's letter, the FBI director's letter that raised issues about Hillary Clinton's use of private email servers as Secretary of State. That happened right before the election. It was October 28th. To John Fasman's point, The media covered it and made it a big part of Hillary Clinton's story. And Hillary didn't really have time to recover from that. And the data shows that her polling really dropped off quickly uh, in the few days in between that letter and the election. So I think you do have these moments. The substance of them matters. And when they happen matters, how much time a candidate has between whatever horrible event happened and the election, how much time they have to recover. That suggests to me that we should expect some sort of October surprise, right? Whether that's John Durham's investigation or something else, that we should expect big news in late October this year. Thank you both. In a moment, we'll hear more from Stuart and Matt about how things could change over the next three months of the campaign. But first, a reminder, if you're not an Economist subscriber, you really should be. You'll get the best offer on a new subscription by heading to economist.com slash 2020 election pod. This week's paper has a super report by John Fasman on the US Postal Service, which could prove pretty important come November. There's more on the TikTok, Trump, Microsoft dance, and a stunning obituary of Olivia de Havilland, and lots more. 
the link for a special rate on a new subscription is economist.com slash 2020 election pod. You'll find it in the notes for this episode. We're in mid-August now with tropical storms, and it all feels a long way from the cool of November. But how much can change in the next three months? How do candidates fall in the fall? Yeah, this is another thing I wanted to talk to to Stuart and Matt about. How can a campaign go wrong, and what does it feel like when it does? I've worked on campaigns where we won, where we lost, and where we tied, you know, in 2000. And they all feel very different in the fall. The winning campaign feels like you're in a flow state. You can't do anything wrong, as I noted earlier. The losing campaign feels like you are reactive all the time. So the biggest mistake that Dukakis made, I was part of. It's the the tank event. And that was a reaction to the Bush campaign doing a similar event where he sat in an F-16 because he had been a fighter pilot and he looked good. And no one remembers that because he looked fine sitting in an F-16 and didn't wear a helmet. So you're reactive and you're responsive and nothing is going right on a losing campaign. And here he comes, General Patton. General Abrams? No, Governor Dukakis. Riding to glory in every little kid's Rambo dream. On the campaign of 2000, when we were tied, we were cautious. And I think that was a big part of the problem. We were sitting on first on a lead and then on a tie. So we were very careful. Al Gore barely ever spoke, for example, about climate change in 2000 because we were being very careful. He kept Bill Clinton on the sidelines despite his 67 percent approval rating because of impeachment. So I don't know if they can run like they're ahead or tied on the Trump campaign. They're probably going to run like they're behind, which means they're going to be flailing around. And that's what we've seen so far. Stuart, do you think that's accurate? you think that's likely that they'll be flailing around? Well, look, the guy who really... Jared uh, is running the campaign. But this guy, Jason Miller, was my intern, who really is now officially in charge, of which I continue to apologize to Western civilization for this. But I think if you look at the history of candidates coming back from big deficits like this, almost always, if not always, they have to have a mea culpa moment. They have to apologize to make voters look at them differently. Now, you know, I think Americans are very forgiving, but you kind of have to go to Betty Ford to like show you're making a good faith effort to quit. And it's the one thing that's unimaginable for Trump. Well, a lot of things are unimaginable for Trump, but that is one of the things that is unimaginable for Trump. But if you just close your eyes and picture a scene where Donald Trump was, look, I've made mistakes, I've listened, I've learned, you know, I've made these changes. People would respect that. And they would, you know, more likely than not, uh, some people who have turned out Trump would uh, give him a second chance. Uh, That's not going to happen. What Trump is going to do is run a very racially divisive campaign because they know that their fate lies with non-white voters. So, you know, for all this industry of how Trump won, why Trump won, Trump voters, all this, on one very basic level, Trump won for one reason. He won because he ran in a year in which 46.1% was enough to win a Republican as per Republican. I mean, Romney lost with 47.2%. So why was that? Well, increased third party, but also for the first time in 20 years, non-white vote declined. So that's the ball game to me. If we knew today the percentage of, of non-white vote of the total electorate, I think we'd know the winner. But I think what we're gonna see, and listen, as a, somebody who worked in Republicans, I mean, it breaks my heart to say this, but I can't lie, uh, they're gonna go to voter suppression in every way, legal, illegal, everything that they can get away with. And it's going to be ugly, unlike any 
race that we've seen because we have a guy who has a lot of power now and a lot of people who he's filled with government, like Chad Wolf, who are these small people who think that they can rise by not saying no to Donald Trump. And it's a very dangerous, toxic situation. Looking back on it, this is also a question for, for both you guys. What is the biggest mistake that the campaigns made and what's the biggest mistake that, that your candidates made? Well, I think in 2000, the biggest mistake that the candidate made was sidelining Bill Clinton. Clinton was extraordinarily popular. I understand why Al Gore was angry at Clinton personally and otherwise. He had three daughters who were close in age to the age of Monica Lewinsky at the time. So he was personally offended by Clinton's conduct and was angry that he had imperiled his prospects for running for president. However, it was a bad mistake because Clinton could have been very helpful. He could have reminded people that we had a booming economy and it was a unipolar world and we were basically safe. I mean, the Clinton years were very, very good years for Americans and for America. So that was probably the biggest candidate mistake. I think if you'd asked almost any of us working on the campaign, we would have voted to bring them out. As far as the campaigns go, I think it's, I would kind of go back to this notion that you become reactive. You start doing things in response to your opponent instead of trying to carve your own path. And so the very first bus trip that any general election candidate for president ever took in the modern era was in 92 when Clinton and Gore and their wives came out of New York on those buses. They weren't doing that because the Bush campaign was preparing to do something like that. That what we were carving a new way of campaigning and that's that's what you got to do. Stuart. I, I think being a, being a candidate is, is difficult in ways that none of us can really comprehend. I, I think in the in the Bush campaign we relied too much in 2000 on sort of an orthodoxy of tax cuts. It never really worked for us. We kept expecting it to work. Really, the only thing that worked for us in 2000 was restoring honor and dignity to the White House. And it was an extraordinary race. I mean, on Election Day, I think consumer confidence was the highest it's ever been on Election Day since we started tracking consumer confidence. That is a race an incumbent should have won, though he didn't win the popular vote. In the Romney campaign, the weirdest thing that happened in the Romney campaign was the storm at the end. Breaking news. An historic storm is about to make landfall. Hurricane Sandy taking direct aim at southern New Jersey right now. Tens of millions. It's a very difficult thing to talk about because immediately people go, well, do you think you would have won without the storm? And there's no universe in which that existed. But I do know that anytime I've defeated an incumbent, you had to control the agenda at the end, sort of like an NBA game. You had to have the ball at the end. And what the storm took away was our ability to control the game at the end. We literally went from having these giant sweeping rallies around the country to sitting in a hotel room watching the president do events. Now, it's not to say that had there not been a storm on Thursday night, you know, Governor Romney could have gone out and said something uh, that was a mistake and we could have lost by more. It's hard to say. There's no universe where that happened. But it is the only time that we've had a, a great natural disaster within the, the week before an election. In my heart of hearts, I always was fairly pessimistic about the race because it's so difficult to beat an incumbent. But once the campaign just literally came to a halt, I really, any hope that we had of winning, I really uh, felt slipping away. At what point 
did you as a campaigner and did your candidate sort of know that the race was over? Well, I worked on a blowout loss in 88, and we knew by the middle of October that there was almost no way to win. I, I think the moment we knew it was over was at the Poly Pavilion debate. I happened to be there for that and was in the staff room watching, and it was the famous moment where he responded to a question about how would you react if your wife was raped and murdered? Would you favor an irrevocable death penalty for the killer? And, you know, it was right on the theme what we discussed, which was competence, uh, but it was exactly the wrong answer. No, I don't, Bernard, and I think you know that I've opposed the death penalty during all of my life. Because the question about Dukakis is, was he kind of an automaton, or did he have heart? And so uh, that moment, we looked at each other and said, well, that's that. Stuart? We, we didn't have confidence we would win in 2000. And in 2004, we were very realistic about it, I think. I, I, I will say this, you know, we never got arrogant about this and felt that we'd cracked some code of how to win this thing. And I think in 2012, I, I was realistic. I think Governor Romney was realistic. At the same time, you know, I, I think that when you play the game at that level, I mean, if you ask a quarterback in the Super Bowl who's behind, you know, 30 to nothing in the third quarter, do you think you're going to win? They're going to say, yeah, we're going to win. They have that confidence in their ability because they've done that before. They have come back. And I think that you really have to have that belief to keep going. And, you know, in 2012 was, and 2004 and 2000, they were very tight races. It would go up or down. And you can make a case, certainly in 2000, had the race been a day earlier or a day later, we could have different results. Arguably the same in 2004. He won because he won Ohio. It, it was not a blowout. So... I think it's very difficult on these candidates. I mean, I think the recount, which I saw up close with Governor Bush, uh, was a nightmare. I think that he was prepared to win and prepared to lose. I think probably Vice President Gore was the same way. And to throw them into that purgatory, mm -hmm. uh, it just emotionally must have been just uh, horrific for him not to know. To Stewart's point, we've had very close elections for the most part in the modern era. And 2004 was so close that I was in Boston on election night. And you'll recall that the first wave of exit polls came in and Kerry was winning in a rout. I mean, I went to a party where people were kind of handing out jobs in the Kerry administration. We were counting a lot of chickens before they ended up not hatching. I think that kind of expectation that you're in it until the very end is the norm in modern presidential races, with the exception of 88, where we knew we were going to lose. In the Trump campaign in 16, they didn't think they were going to win. You know, I'll keep confidences, but my phone was ringing from people inside the Trump campaign right up to about 10 o'clock at night, busy spinning whose fault it was that they were losing. Uh, yeah. They were going to lose. And some of those people were on the very high position in the Trump administration. I think they were shocked that they yeah. were. So, Charlotte, quite a lot of these moments that, according to the operatives on the inside of campaigns at least, turned events, they happen at these kind of set pieces, you know, big events, big campaign stops, important rallies. 2020 is a weird one because it looks like being a campaign without any of those things. Does that reduce the potential for those kind of trajectory-changing moments, do you think? One of the important things that happens in the summer are 
of course, the conventions. And usually they bring together the different parts of the party and try to unite them behind a single candidate. Biden's team this time around has been very focused on this, in part because of the division that we saw in 2016 between the Clinton and Sanders camps. And you've seen Biden and Sanders appoint people to a board to create this long 110-page policy document that tries to lay out a unified vision for criminal justice reform, education reform, health care, climate change, and so forth. And so Biden has been doing this groundwork even before the convention, which will be important this year because the convention isn't really happening. He's not even going to Milwaukee himself. It's going to be all remote. The other really big thing to look out for are the debates. And Biden is someone who is prone to gaffes. That's really his specialty. It's almost his defining feature as a candidate. And so Trump is going to try to use the debates to seem like the strong commander in chief and portray Biden as a gaff-filled, senile candidate. And so I think that will be a big wild card in the fall. I think that's a great point about this sort of unification that happens at conventions. That is less of a factor this year, I think, because, as you pointed out, Biden has been really deliberate about reaching out to the left wing of the party. And on the other side, among Republicans, the party has really sort of been reoriented around personal fealty to Donald Trump. So that kind of work doesn't really have to be done this year. As far as gas go, it's interesting. There's an argument that the pandemic has been good for Joe Biden as a candidate because it has kept him off the trail. He's always been an undisciplined, mediocre candidate. And the pandemic has kept him off the trail and it's kept the focus on Donald Trump and let him sort of lurk through the conventions. John, talking of the Republican Party and personal fealty to Donald Trump, it's important to mention in passing that Stuart Stevens is part of this influential group of anti-Trump Republicans that have come together under the banner of the Lincoln Project. And they're responsible for some of, I think, the most powerful campaign ads in this cycle. One of the interesting things about Donald Trump alienating a lot of the old Republican political establishment is a lot of the best, most experienced campaign people and ad makers in the Republican Party are opposed to him and have put their talents to to work in the Lincoln Project. Stewart said in passing there that the only way that Donald Trump could win in November is through voter suppression. How would that work in theory? I think there are a couple of different things that he's probably referring to. One is the pattern of closing in-person polling places, which has led to very long lines. Certainly in Wisconsin, we saw that where people in mainly minority precincts had to wait much longer than people in majority white precincts. I saw that when I covered Super Tuesday in Texas. There's also the campaign against mail-in voting that Donald Trump is waging, which seems designed in part to sort of lay the groundwork to sow doubts about the results of the election. You saw his tweet yesterday encouraging people to vote by mail in Florida. I think there's a fear it also may draw Republicans away from voting by mail. There's also the ever-present risk of foreign interference and of disinformation, both foreign and domestic. I think all of those things together, people are worried that they will discourage people from voting, that they will sow doubts about the, the results of the election. Thanks, guys. We'll be back in a moment to find out what happens when a candidate loses but doesn't concede. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Coming back to our conversation with Matt Bennett, who worked on Michael Dukakis's 1988 campaign and then both of Bill Clinton's campaigns. He's now at Third Way, a center-left think tank. And also with Stuart Stevens, who was Mitt Romney's chief strategist in 2012. He is a veteran of multiple Republican presidential campaigns, and he's now part of the Lincoln Project, which is a group of anti-Trump Republicans who have crafted really some of the best political ads of this campaign cycle. So I want to pick up on the question of concession. How do you write a good concession speech, and how do you concede gracefully? Stuart. Well, you know, in 2012, this kind of became an issue because uh, we actually campaigned on Election Day in the Romney campaign, and he was asked on the plane, do you have a concession speech? And he said, no. I mean, because who's going to say yes on election day? Right. Like, right. that would have right. been the story. Romney working on his concession speech. Right. But he didn't have one, but we had one. I mean, right. it wasn't like we hadn't written one. So, uh, you know, people have said, oh, Romney was so shocked that he won. He hadn't, you know, said he didn't even have a concession speech. It's like, well, come on, give me a break. And for him, look, Romney's a big guy. He didn't want to drag this out. Lost. He thought it was important for the country. He just went out and did it. I have just called President Obama to congratulate him on his victory. His supporters and his campaign also deserve congratulations. Sucks. Really sucks. Thank you and God bless America. You guys are the best. It really sucks. I will say I've never written one, but I was present for the mother of all concession speeches, which was Gore after the Supreme Court ruling in 2000. I was happened to be there was a staff party. It was obviously it was the Christmas season. There was a staff party for the Gore staff at the Naval Observatory that night. And we weren't in much of a celebratory mood, but we went to the party. And then he asked a few of us to come with him down to the White House where he was going to give this speech. So we went down and it was one of the most remarkably gracious speeches, I think, in American history. I say to President-elect Bush that what remains of partisan rancor must now be put aside and may God bless his stewardship of this country. Neither he nor I anticipated this long and difficult road. Certainly neither of us wanted it to happen. Yet it came, and now it has ended, resolved as it must be resolved through the honored institutions of our democracy. And then a very small group of us went back to the Naval Observatory and a whole bunch of musicians who had been traveling with us, including Stevie Wonder and Bon Jovi and Tom Petty, showed up at the house and it was quite a night. Over the library of one of our great law schools is inscribed the motto, not under man, but under God and law. But the speech itself was, I mean, we were all weeping and it was, it was unbelievably difficult. Let there be no doubt. While I strongly disagree with the court's decision, I accept it. I accept the finality of this outcome, which will be ratified next Monday in the Electoral College. And tonight, for the sake of our unity as a people and the strength of our democracy, I offer my concession. So looking toward this year's denouement, which is probably not going to be on election night, right, because there are going to be a million ballots to count that are coming in late, what do you guys worry about? What are your main concerns as you think about the election and the results and how the country receives them? Well, I'm thinking about that pretty much full time right now because Stuart alluded to this. I think there is absolutely no question. It is 100 percent certain that Trump will 
claimed that the election was rigged, that the if he loses, that it was stolen from him. I mean, he claimed that the 2016 election was stolen from him and he won it. So he, he is going to claim that. He's claiming it already. He is undermining the vote in every possible way. They are suppressing the vote in every possible way. And as we know, we aren't going to know the winner for a long time. There is a, a well-known phenomenon in politics called the blue shift, where the count on election night tends to move towards Democrats over time because provisional ballots tend to uh, favor Democrats. This time, that blue shift is going to be enormous because many more Democrats will vote by mail than Republican. So during that whole period, however long it lasts, it could be a day, a week, or several months, he will be undermining people's faith in the integrity of the electoral process, and it's going to be horrendous. And I think it's going to be the most tumultuous election probably certainly in the last 150 years. Stuart, does that sound right to you? Well, that's cheery. Um, <laughs> I still hold out hope we can crush him and take that away. Look, if we live in a world where Trump's lost Florida by a couple hundred thousand votes, this whole thing's going to be over. There's no path for him to win without Florida. And I think if you're in a world in which there's a 30,000 vote difference that he's lost Florida, okay, he's not going to concede. But if it's 200,000, you know, it's not going to matter if he concedes or not. He'll have lost, and it'll be obvious he's lost. I've done races where the opponent never conceded. At a certain point, it's like, it doesn't matter. You know, I mean, you can say you won, it doesn't matter. And, you know, we can call a lot of what's been happening demonstrations, civil unrest, but they're also sort of get-out-the-vote rallies, I think. Right. And I think the intensity to vote among African-American community, I mean, Far be it for me to be an expert. I mean, I've consistently failed at getting African-American votes, but um, I, I think it's going to be very high. So I still hold out hope, I mean, and certainly in the Lincoln Project, that's our hope, though we operate on the assumption that we could be at this thing in December. But I hope not. It would be incredibly destructive to the country. It's going to be ugly, and in part it's going to be ugly because the Republican Party is going to fail in its responsibility to be a governing party and act in a responsible way. And I hate to say that, but it's true. And, and they would need to go out in some sort of collective effort to sustain it, a, a peaceful transition, and I doubt they will. First of all, I, I vastly prefer Stewart's first scenario to the others that we've discussed. But, but look, I, I think his last point is so important. And I go back to 2000. The very first thing that Al Gore did after reading the Supreme Court decision was he sent a text to Chris Lehane, who was his press secretary, and the text said, please don't trash the Supreme Court. And that was notwithstanding the fact that Gore understood, as all of us, I'm a lawyer, we read that decision and we thought, you know, leaving partisanship aside, it was a very strange decision. Say what you will about the recount and what ultimately would have happened, whether Bush would have won or not. That decision was not a great one. And we were very angry. We had had 28 days to stoke our anger, but all of us immediately accepted that it was over and we were going to accept it. And we were never going to call Bush illegitimate, or at least most of us didn't. We would say that the election was very close, that it was disputed, but he was the president. And that isn't going to happen this time, not only from the White House, but from the rest of that party is, I think, and that's, that's what concerns me the most. Yeah, yeah you know, I, I've worked a lot overseas, including in Africa, and I was working in the Congo. And uh, 
election observer from the UN who was a veteran of many third world elections said something to me once that really stuck with me. He said, you know, the thing about this democracy is like somebody has to be willing to lose. And uh, that's the problem. It's part of the bargain of the American experiment, the democratic experiment. And Trump won't. Normally, a party would form a circuit breaker function and pull the switch on it. And if you asked me four years ago, would the Republicans do that? I would have said, absolutely. Uh, now, uh, I have zero faith they would. And it breaks my heart to say that because I help elect a lot of these people. There's been a moment and they have not met the moment. And I think it's gonna be recorded as such. I, I think it's gonna go down very shamefully in history, the role that they've played. So, John, Charlotte, just following on from what Matt and Stuart were saying there, I want to put a scenario to you. It's election night in Florida. The in-person voting early returns show that Donald Trump is a little bit ahead of Joe Biden. But as the blue shift starts to take place throughout the night, more mail-in votes come, Joe Biden's catching up. Donald Trump declares that he's won the state before the count is all in. And then it's down to the state officials. Florida has a Republican governor who recently appointed the Secretary of State, who's an important official in administering elections there. It's also got Republican majorities in both its lower house and its Senate, state Senate. What happens next? I think that's a scenario we could see not just in Florida, but also in Wisconsin and I think Pennsylvania. And it's a, it's a real concern. So the big question is, do those legislatures certify Donald Trump as a winner before all the votes are in? I think it's not impossible that they do. The question of what happens next is a good one. I don't know. I think I, I, I can't imagine that if that happens, that Joe Biden's campaign and the Democrats will go down without a fight. I can't imagine that fight will be anything other than protracted and ugly and wind up dragging the courts into it. And I think we could see a situation where we don't know who the winner is until Christmas, until early January. And I think America should really prepare itself for a very, very ugly end of 2020. I absolutely agree with that, Fasman. That seems like the most likely scenario, unfortunately. And it's one that will occur while the country is going to surely still be gripped by the crisis of COVID and already have huge uncertainty weighing on the economy. So you take the combined effects of COVID, both the health effects and the economic effects of COVID, plus the uncertainty that will surely still be keeping the country almost paralyzed politically after election day, and it's going to be a very, very strange end to the year. Well, both Stuart and Matt seem to think that the antidote to that kind of election night chaos and protracted aftermath is a blowout win for Joe Biden. But I think it's worth reminding people that in the real clear politics polling average at the moment, Joe Biden is six and a half points ahead. That's a lot, but it's not huge. I mean, it's quite possible to see a lead like that shrinking between now and election day. You know, the margin for error is a couple of points. Joe Biden, in any case, needs to win the popular vote by a few points in order to be assured of victory, given the way that the Electoral College currently favours Republicans. So the sorts of scenarios they described there and that you've described are not far-fetched. One more thing on Bennett that sort of made me smile. He talked about how Bon Jovi and the other musician who was traveling with Gore, how they all seem to have some kind of 
party afterwards. And it reminded me of the huge disparity in musicians between the two parties. When you're a Democrat and you get elected, Beyonce sings for you. When you're a Republican and you get elected, you get three doors down. So when this all wraps up in January, we'll see uh, the entertainment value of inauguration night. Well, on that musical note, it's quiz time. Hang on a minute. Charlotte got to do it last week, so I did quiz time this week. I put Matt Bennett and Stuart Stevens on the hot seats. The question is, The Economist reported on Mitt Romney's run for governor of Massachusetts on August 10th, 2002. We wrote about his one very unusual attribute for someone seeking that position. What was it? Uh, that he was Mormon. Stuart, what's your guess? Um, that he wasn't living in Massachusetts. You're very close. The answer was that he had little in common with his state. The quote is, Mitt Romney does not seem like someone from Massachusetts. There's something too friendly about his demeanor. His good looks are too Midwestern bland, and damn it, he claims never to swear. The second question about Governor Dukakis. The Economist wrote on January 3rd, 1976, that Governor Dukakis devoted about 99% of his first year as governor to one task. What was that? Stuart, you first. The budget. Matt? Cleaning up Boston Harbor. The answer is staving off bankruptcy for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Ah. Nearly went bankrupt in 76. Thank you both so much. This was a real pleasure. All right. It was fantastic. Well, I enjoyed that quiz a lot. I personally would have failed. How about you, Charlotte and John? How would you have done? Honestly. Zero. Zero. I would have gotten a zero. Absolutely zero. I mean, that's not even a a real question, but I am happy to answer it accurately for you. Do I get a point now? (laughs) No, I'm afraid you're not getting a point for that. However, Stuart, I think, is getting a point. I think he's, with apologies to Matt, who's a longstanding friend of The Economist, he lost that quiz pretty emphatically. All right, thank you, John, for recording all of that on propane power. My pleasure. I'm going to go out and check my generator. Have a good weekend. Charlotte, thank you. Thank you. That's all from us. Thanks very much for listening. If you like the podcast, please tell people to listen and leave a review in the usual places. We'll be back next week with more Checks and Balance. Until then, stay safe and stay sane. Being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.